I'm Tess Vigland, and as we work, there are growing demands that employers take a stand. As I've gotten older, I think we've thought a little bit more about what the company's values are as opposed to, oh, it's a paycheck and it's my job. You're going to work and they have different values than you, or you're going to quit and find a, a company or a job that has the same values as you. I've worked at companies in the past where I did not think that their values aligned with mine, and I think if people understand that, like, in working together you can change things for the better, then maybe, but, you know, it's hard if you're just the only one. This is As We Work from The Wall Street Journal, a show about the changing workplace and everything you need to know to navigate it. That was David Maltby, Kim Borges, and Ian Crane. We spoke with them on the streets of New York City. Coming up, workers taking action to demand action inside and outside the company. Many employees are no longer content with just a salary and benefits. They want their employers to reflect their own values and to reflect them publicly. They're pushing companies to change their internal policies and take stances on issues that sometimes have nothing to do with the companies themselves. We'll explore why and whether these movements are getting any results. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Between half and three quarters of all women report that they have faced some form of sexual harassment in the workplace. And too often, they're denied a voice and a fair chance to do anything about it. Today, we send a clear and strong message that we stand with you for safety, dignity, and for justice. In early March, President Biden gathered advocates at the White House as he signed into law a ban on forced arbitration in workplace sexual misconduct cases. Forced arbitration clauses are found in many employee agreements and help keep a lot of workplace disputes private. This law changes that, at least for those accusing their employers of covering up sexual misconduct claims. But this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for workers demanding change. So let's hop in the Wayback Machine all the way back to 2018. The Me Too movement is in full swing. Hundreds of high-profile men have resigned or been fired in the wake of sexual misconduct claims. Then came allegations that Google had protected several senior executives after they were accused of sexual misconduct, with one, Andy Rubin, receiving a $90 million exit package. An attorney for Rubin said he, quote, strongly denies any misconduct. Google employees staged a worldwide walkout and handed the company a list of demands, including that it end forced arbitration over sexual misconduct allegations and that its reporting on those allegations be more transparent. We demand structural change in the name of transparency, accountability, and equity. The voice you heard there, one of the organizers of that protest, is Tanuja Gupta. She's a program manager at Google, still works there, and says her work to change policy on both internal and external issues is far from done. We reached out to Google, but they declined to comment. 
Tanuja, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let's start by giving folks a little bit of background on the walkout that you organized at Google back in 2018. Uh, What was your role at the company at that time, and what prompted you to speak out so publicly? In 2018, I was a program manager on the search team, and the news had broke about Andy Rubin and how he was offered a $90 million kind of golden parachute to leave the company when there were allegations of sexual misconduct that were levied against him. And a New York Times article came out in October that year. And I think if you were on the outside, it may have felt sudden, but inside things were kind of brewing. And just kind of take your mind back there, you know, it was the height of the Me Too movement. And there was just something that was like, this is it, how much longer? And how many more outrageous cases are we going to see like this before we do something? And so my role was working with the other people that were kind of similarly enraged and wanted to do something. And it was so organic and happened so fast. And in a week, we had mobilized people across the globe. And so I was kind of like operations coordination, just getting everything ready so that way local teams could organize their own walkouts. So templates, tools everything you can imagine. I'm a program manager by day, and so all those skills came in really, really handy to organize a protest. At the time, uh, Google's CEO put out an internal memo saying that, quote, in order to live up to the high bar we set for Google, we need to make some changes, end quote. Google took action on part of what you were asking for, the ending forced uh, arbitration and changing the way harassment claims uh, were handled. How did that leave you feeling? We were pissed. It was a really good strategy from them because they got a victory lap in the press. But anyone who has either gone through these issues or knows someone that's gone through these issues knows the level of intersectionality of these types of claims, right? How do you segregate between or distinguish between, you know, gender discrimination sexual harassment, and retaliation cases. They're all related to one another. Any lawyer will tell you, as many told us, that like these cases are all going to still end up in arbitration because something about the case will not meet this very narrow scope of sexual harassment, individual sexual harassment, and will force it back into arbitration. So it was a pretty meaningless change. And so our work kind of doubled. Now, not only did we still have to fight for ending forced arbitration, but we also had to fight the myth that Google had ended that. I'm curious, had you ever been involved in something like this, whether it's a a walkout or any other kind of action against a company that you'd worked for? I'd never been involved in any kind of activism with my employer, no. Um, I'm pretty active in the community. I chair the board of an organization dedicated to um, providing free services to survivors of sexual assault and harassment and abuse. But with an employer, it's a very different ballgame because the power structure is so different. You know, the night before the walkout, I looked at my husband. He's like, I might get fired. Are we going to be okay? Mm. So, uh, What did your husband say? And, and how, did, how, how did you get through that fear that that might end up happening. My husband was incredibly supportive, as was my family, um, which I was a little nervous about telling them about because they worked so hard to come to this country 
to make it here to give us a life. So you're from an immigrant family? Yeah. So my parents immigrated from India in the 80s. They Mm. worked so hard to get here. They came with very little. And to think that I could be so privileged to walk out on a job that pays me more than they could imagine and to think that I could walk back in was incredibly privileged. But they knew what it was for. Hmm. And I'm very grateful for that support, but it definitely gave me pause. It was one of the few women of color in the organizing group. And I do think that's a different kind of, um, it's a different kind of thought process that people of color and immigrant families go through when they're weighing activism versus the hand that feeds them. You were one of the first employees in recent memory to so publicly speak out against your employer. Uh, Of course, in the last couple of years during the pandemic, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder while in police custody, we've seen so many others follow suit and not even necessarily looking at issues internal to their companies, but issues external to their companies. Uh, Disney with the Don't Say Gay Bill uh, in Florida. What do you think changed during the pandemic to make this possible? Very practically and logistically speaking, we all just had more time to be more aware, to kind of consume more and learn more. I think the second thing is the pandemic really changed for many people how they saw their place in society. I mean, the fact that we could call some workers essential and and some others non-essential, either way, you're questioning you know, if I'm not essential, then what am I doing with my life? And if you're essential, you're wondering, well, if I'm so essential, why am I being treated so poorly? And so I think a lot of people just start to hit their breaking points. And now they get organized, they have the time to do that. And you start seeing kind of more public, outspoken resistance, which Mm. is fantastic and important. You decided to take action on this issue uh, within your company. It became a much bigger issue nationwide right through the pandemic. Uh, In fact, you were at the White House earlier this year when the president signed a law banning mandatory arbitration for workplace sexual misconduct claims. Uh, What was that transition like for you, kind of from going from being an internal activist to one calling for federal laws to change? The transition felt completely natural because anybody who's within a company is trying to make reform at the company, which is great. Google ended forced arbitration in 2019, but they only did it a week before we were headed to D.C. to announce the introduction of the Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal Act. And you know there's conversations going back and forth between Google and The Hill. And so it's almost like you have to put pressure externally to get certain things done internally. And then once it's done internally, you just you can't go company by company, right? You need to do this at the legislative level. If I were to leave the company, if anybody were to leave Google and to go to another company only to be forced into arbitration again, what does mm. it matter? You need federal reform. I mean, as you know, activism is kind of a relay race, right? You get the baton, you do what you can, you pass it to the next person so that way you can keep bringing fresh momentum to the movement. Do you feel like you achieved what you set out to do? I think we achieved partially what we set out to do. We ended forced arbitration for all claims at Google, and now we've been 
part of this journey of ending forced arbitration for sexual harassment and assault. But now we got to go back for everyone. We need to go back for all the claims of racial discrimination, harassment, wage theft, retaliation, pregnancy discrimination, disability discrimination. All of those things need to be addressed as well. And that's a lot to fix, Tanuta. It is a lot to fix, you know, and there's some people that would say that's too incremental if you go issue by issue. Other people want to go, you know, they want to go to nuclear. I think you just got to take as many wins as you can, push where you can, get allies on board as much as you can and really see any inch of progress as progress, you know. But yeah, it's a bit it's a long fight. (laughs) Are there any lessons that you would pass along to workers elsewhere in in terms of getting an employer to listen and to take action? Lessons both good and bad that were hard to learn and easy to learn. There's a number of lessons I would say we've learned along the way. If you want to make progress kind of like by five degrees, you need to shoot for 10 degrees because there are always going to be opposing forces that try to bring you back. And if you don't leave any room for compromise, so that way they feel like that you came down a little bit and they got something, then you're shooting yourself in the foot. I think the other thing is like figure out who your real partners are, because there's a lot of people who talk. There's a lot of people who post on social media, but they're not going to do the work. The other things I should probably mention this as well. You know, anger is good. It motivates you. It keeps you, you know, focused. But I would also say, like, try to always ensure that you're keeping it about the issue. You're keeping your activism about the actual policy reform that you're looking at, not just my employer is evil and this place is a terrible place to work. Like, that's not really not going to get you anywhere. It'll just alienate people. And then the other thing is things take time. So just kind of give yourself some grace uh, because otherwise you just burn yourself out and then you're kind of useless to everyone. I'm curious, having gone through this, having helped lead a fight, how do you feel about working at Google now? You know, I am the last walkout organizer who's here. Hmm. And people left for different reasons, very valid reasons. And I do get asked, you know, why do you stay there? And I've been here for 11 years, and I truly think this company is like a microcosm of America. We have things that are great. And we have things that are pretty terrible, just like this country. And I choose to stay in America and make it better, and I choose to stay in Google and make it better. There's always going to be problems in different places, and it's a matter of how much you can kind of fight and make it better from the inside. Tanuja Gupta, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So that's what it's like to fight for change inside your company. But increasingly, workers are demanding their employers take a stand on issues outside the building. And the pandemic is a big reason why. We'll talk about that when we come back. And have you ever spoken out against your employer? How'd that go? Email us at asweworkatwsj.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's one thing to protest a corporate policy that affects you. It's a whole other thing to protest against your company for not speaking out about issues taking place outside. More and more workers are demanding that corporations take a stand on a host of hot-button topics. The most recent example is at Disney, where employees staged a walkout and a rally when the company, at first, declined to speak out against a bill in Florida that restricts teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity in public schools. This sound is from the protest in Burbank, California. Disney CEO Bob Chapek initially told staff the biggest impact the company could make was through its content. The company later issued another statement saying, quote, the don't say gay bill should never have passed and should never have been signed into law. And Chapek apologized and said Disney would reassess its approach to advocacy. Many companies faced similar demands to take a stance on Black Lives Matter in the wake of George Floyd's murder while in police custody and to improve internal diversity and inclusion policies. And it was all happening while companies were struggling to keep workers engaged during the pandemic. Let's get some context for all this. Noah Gaffney is the executive director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation. She studies how companies can benefit from being good corporate citizens. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Tess. What role do you think the pandemic has played in this increase in worker activism? I think we see two factors at play. When many white-collar workers moved online, they felt less engaged. And there were a number of reasons for that, including the fact that employee engagement and volunteerism opportunities fell to the wayside as companies were pivoting to online work, right? There were fewer opportunities to engage in giving back. And even though some companies were doing things like donating masks or providing assistance to social organizations, as the tide turned, not just from the COVID pandemic, but also towards conversations around racial and gender equity, and other social issues of the time, you know, we didn't see companies react in an immediate way and in a really comprehensive way. And that's when I think employees really began to see that connection across different social issues and push their companies to do more. The second thing is really as we're entering this new wave of, uh, I don't want to say post-COVID recovery, but certainly as COVID begins to become more uh, manageable and more of a long-term issue, uh, we're seeing the great resignation. And we know that uh, more than half of workers are planning to look for a new position. And so they have a new level of bargaining power, which they didn't previously have. And they're using that. And they know that they have that in order to really push their employers to do more and take on more responsibility for these societal and environmental issues. Social media, that also has to be a real mover in this as well, right? Just the rise of technology that makes it easier to communicate with everybody. Absolutely. So if you think about 20, 30 years ago, if somebody wanted to raise awareness about a social issue in their corporation, 
You'd have to leak documents. You'd have to uh, engage the press in some way. And now individuals can really share what's happening behind the scenes directly to a very large audience through social media. They're also using tools like Google Docs to share salaries and uh, organize mm. internally. So there are ways that you can use social media externally, but also other modes of technology to really gather information and drive change in a completely different way. So you mentioned the millennials, Gen Z. Is any of that trickling, I suppose, upwards in age? <laughs> Are older people asking for this kind of change as well? Research in around 2018 showed that baby boomers were less interested in corporate social activism. Uh, and G Gen X was really focused uh, on being neutral. So some Gen X workers were very pro, some Gen X workers were against, uh, but they were primarily neutral. So as more young people enter the workforce, we are seeing this trickle up and we're seeing this trickle up to the executive suite in ways that we didn't previously see. One of the reasons that the Disney walkout appeared so stark and Disney employees were so disheartened is because the previous CEO, Bob Iger, was a very staunch advocate of progressive issues. And so it does seem like uh, CEOs like uh, Salesforce's Mark Benioff, uh, PayPal CEO, and others have really been leading the charge on this for the past five years. And we're seeing it not just come from younger employees, but also those in the C-suite. But I guess I'm still trying to nail down why it is that the social mission is so important to workers now. If they had, you know, kind of this disconnect from their employer, what 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 is it that now is driving them to ask for these very specific things that have to do with with these social issues that are that I suppose that, that the nation is grappling with? There's been a really big push, an underlying push towards corporate activism that we've seen over the past five to seven years. It started with a number of tech companies. Amazon employees were using their shares to create a shareholder resolution around environmental action. We know that there was a Google walkout over gender discrimination. And so these things have really been bubbling under the surface for some time. But as I think people became more conscious of their day-to-day -day work, they saw that they were working harder as a result of COVID and, and taking on more responsibilities. And they wanted businesses to really show their appreciation in some way. So there was mm. a sense that employers needed to do more during COVID. And what they were seeing is at the same time, a lot of stuff might have been happening behind the scenes, but businesses were felt quieter than usual, right? People didn't necessarily have the same water cooler conversations or the same connections with people outside of their team. And so greater silos were created and this impacted people's engagement with their company and their connection to the company's overall mission. And so things that had been bubbling underneath the surface really came to the fore. All right, so what can and what are companies doing to respond to some of these demands? It's very CEO driven. And I think that is something that, for example, we saw with Disney, right? The previous CEO was very progressive. This CEO was more hesitant and that created a lot of tension in the company because they were used to a different way of operating. Similarly, again, a lot of the tech companies that received pushback, you know, were really founded on very idealistic principles. And so that disconnect was something that really disgruntled employees. So I think 
there has to be a connection between the company's mission and the way the CEO or the senior leadership is working towards particular social issues. We also know that there is no opting out. So there is a lot of challenge in terms of CEOs really have to be mindful about the way that they engage with social issues, both professionally and personally. In some cases, though, companies could face backlash on either side of an issue, couldn't they? Both internally from, certainly there are employees who have different viewpoints within a company, and then externally, you have social and political forces that are outside of your control that will make different demands on you. So how do they walk that line without hurting the bottom line or sending a message to the workforce that they don't share their same values? It's very complicated. And we've seen organizations face both backlash and opportunities at the same time. So if we think about the Nike example with Colin Kaepernick a few years ago, they received both a boycott and a boycott at the same time, meaning that some people decided not to purchase the brand, but they actually saw a general uptick in sales because some people decided to purchase the brand. So as we live in a very polarized society, companies do need to take a stand on a particular issue and they're not going to please all of their employees and they're certainly not going to please all of their stakeholders, but increasingly they do have to take a position. But bottom line, why should companies, especially large publicly traded companies, take stands based on what their employees are demanding? Could you make an argument that their first obligation is to shareholders, not stakeholders like workers? Recent studies show that businesses have actually moved employees to become their most important stakeholder, meaning previously it was really focused on investors and shareholders, and now there's a much greater focus on employees. So in terms of business risk, we are seeing that employees have come to the fore. But also, let's not forget that particularly in many of these organizations, employees are also shareholders. And again, with the Amazon example of Amazon employees who are also shareholders creating a shareholder resolution to push Amazon to do more on climate change. You know, we're seeing really the confluence of these factors. And we know that as there is a multi-generational wealth transfer to millennials happening in the next 10 years, as millennials become more sophisticated investors, they're also expecting companies to push these issues forward. So there really is a confluence of factors both from an employee standpoint, but also from an investor standpoint. Noah Gaffney, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, it's not just about values, it's also about your time. If it feels like sometimes you need to draw a chalk line in your house between your work and your life, especially while working from home, our pro tip is some advice for setting boundaries. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. And finally today, our pro tip. 
Do you feel like your home life and your work life have become the same thing? Well, today our work and life columnist Rachel Feinzig joins us to talk about some of the ways to draw boundaries between our work lives and our home lives, especially when the two are happening in the same place. Welcome back. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Has this been just as tough for you as for everyone else who's been remote working? Yes. I mean, and part of it is this is not normal working from home. I actually worked from home before the pandemic. And it's certainly a different thing when your kids are landing home from school all the time and when all of your colleagues are working around the clock too from home. And there's this sense that everyone's kind of always on. All right. Let's quickly go through some of the the really practical tips for setting boundaries. Um, (laughs) Tell us about the timer. Yeah, one expert suggested this to me. She was like, it's it's simple, it might seem obvious, but it works. Set a timer to go off 10 minutes, you know, to the hour if you have hour-long video calls. And it's a reminder to you and it's like a cue to the people that you're talking to that, hey, it's time for you to go prep dinner, maybe switch to something personal, maybe just switch to hunkering down and doing your actual work, you know, writing that report, getting that project done instead of just being at, on meetings all the time. Yeah, maybe we actually go back to the old-fashioned egg timer on the stove. (laughs) All right. And tell us about the art of saying no without actually saying no. I think we would all benefit from that one in more ways than one. Right. You don't want it to sound like a no. You don't want to just say no and then just walk away. This was from a lawyer who I talked to in Texas. And she said, you know, she's a partner when associates come for her. You can say something like, I'm so busy right now, but I'll be available at X time. Or I'm so busy, but I know someone who has the expertise you're looking for who can help you. You you want to be helpful to the person who who is asking you and make that no sound like a yes, even when it's really a no. So if you're saying no is potentially a problem, then you are, in addition, also providing a solution to that problem. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, you talked with a CEO who has a bucket list, but this is not the kind of bucket list that we are all well familiar with. This is a different sort of bucket list. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> this is basically the I'm probably not going to do that bucket list. So he, <laughs> he sorts everything into five categories. Like, you know, they range from I'm committed to I'm trying to I just don't care. And I think it's a very freeing idea, right? But this CEO told me that it helps him to kind of compare two different things and say, which one do I care about more and, and make choices that are really aligned with the priorities in his life, which I, I think could be really helpful for a lot of folks. All right. Rachel, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Next time, we're bringing you conversations from our Jobs Summit, the WSJ live event. We'll be exploring age discrimination in the workplace and have practical advice on how to thrive in a multi-generational workforce. And a reminder that we really do want to hear from you What role is work playing in your life right now? How has that changed over the last couple of years? Email us. Let us know. Our address is aswework at wsj.com. You can also find us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts, and I'm at Tess Vigland. As We Work is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Charlotte Gartenberg is our producer. Amanda Llewellyn is our development producer. Scott Salloway is our supervising producer. Jessica Fenton is our sound engineer. Our music was composed by Hansdale Sue. Kateri Yoakum is the first warm day of spring. And The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Tess Vigland. See you next time. <laughs>